Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, everybody out there in the internet world, iTunes, Spotify, what have you. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown, our subset, My Obsession. I am your, essentially your host these days, Matt Koplick. Once again, John Miscavige and I are in a major brawl. It's, you know, Patty Lapone and Christine Ebersol have nothing on us and our feuds. But today I have with me a Tony nominee, some would call him a Broadway star, but after today, you're going to know him because of this podcast. So fuck everything else he's ever done. Uh, mean Girl star, Mr. Gray Henson. Hello, Gray. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here today. Uh, I know your schedule is very busy these days, as all of ours are. Booked with, solid. Booked solid. I mean, you had to wake up, get out of bed, put on clothes, I'm assuming. Put on a sweatshirt, <laughs> yeah, and a hat because my hair couldn't be longer. I mean, you and I are both wearing hats right now. I definitely <laughs> alone I, in our apartments. Yes, I was telling Gray, I'm in the process of moving. I actually, I will be moving a day after we record this, and there's only like one mirror currently in my home because all the mirrors have been taken down. And I looked in the bathroom this morning, and I went, "Oh no, she'll be wearing a hat today." <laughs> Um, my roommate and I just ordered clippers from the internet, and um, what are clippers? We're gonna vent, you know, like hair clippers. So, like oh. something you can buzz or like do the mm. sides and whatever. And we're gonna venture into hair cutting later. And funny. I'm terrified. As well, you should be. But that the best things in life are exciting and scary, as Little Red told us. Come through, Little Red. I don't know what it says about me. You said clippers, and the first thing I thought of was like berets. That means you're gay. Am I gay? Surprise. Uh, and your roommate is also a friend of the pod, Mr. Josh Daniel. Josh Daniel, Captain Smiles on the internet, on Captain. Instagram. Yes, indeed. Captain Smiles, which Captain. is a fun little name. Uh, Gray, let's, let's do a little um, intro. Let's ease you into this pod. You know, start with like two fingers before we go full penetration into your Oops. obsession today. Whoops. <laughs> Got it. No, now I know what we're doing. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> who who needs two fingers? Who uses two fingers anymore? Uh, great. When did your love of theater begin? Um, I I mean I know when I loved performing before I loved theater because I started as a ballet dancer. Oddly enough, when Ooh. I was like three, almost four years old, I started in ballet class in Macon, Georgia, and. Uh, my mom said I was dancing all over the house and just performing. And so she put me in dance class because she's, she wanted a gay son. So she <laughs> encouraged all of it. The best moms um, do. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> but, um, and then uh, theater sort of came a little bit after that. And I did Peter Pan. I was the last boy when I was four. I did the whiz. I was a munchkin. <laughs> a very white I never got to do whiz. Peter Pan. I did. However, surprising. I know I did. However, uh, fracture my ankle jumping around the living room trying to be mary martin so of course yeah i'll do it jumping out the window <laughs> exactly Woof. that was that was that's another story me jumping out the window i mean she does kind of look like a gay man she does i mean she she's either a hyper lesbian or a twinkie twinkie boy yeah which great combo by the way oh yeah um but my th love for theater i think started uh, w by watching movies and i guess musical theater um I, I loved all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein films. Mm -hmm. And my mom 
introduced me to all of that. And then she introduced me to Meet Me in St. Louis, which was like my all-time favorite movie. And I guess that's what we're talking about today. That Sorry is what to we're talking about later tonight. You can't get to the subject too soon. We got, we're got we still stretching out. Um, yeah, well, that's, I mean, you know, to put a pin in that TBD, but I loved yeah. that movie. And then I started performing more because of the movies I watched mm-hmm. from like the golden age of musical films. And, uh, and then I just started doing all of it up until... You know, I've realized you could do it professionally. Yeah. Uh, There was like a light bulb kind of went off in your head and like people get paid to do this. Yeah. I don't even think I realized that was a thing until like senior year of college. Truly. (laughs) And I always talk about this when I do like, you know, uh, Q&A's with younger kids and stuff. They always ask like, what made you decide? And I was like, well, the thing that's strange about being a professional performer much like being a professional athlete is that it's something that you do as a kid as a hobby for fun and then it just turns into your profession so it's a very weird like you don't really decide to do it but you've got to put in the work and Mm. hopefully train and stuff and then all of a sudden you're getting paid to do it and I remember the first time I got paid to perform was Book of Mormon because that was my first professional job I never did summer stock or anything I was never hired at the Muni or PCLO and then a month after I graduated, I started the first national tour of Mormon on my 22nd birthday. And I was like, Oh, okay. Now this is my job. And yeah. it's like, it's a weird, weird transition. And it's amazing. And I don't think it's, I still don't think it's really caught up to me at some point. I feel like when does my real career begin where I have to make money like start and... doing real estate and things. Um, right, I like yeah, how you tried yeah. to be endearing, like, Oh, I wasn't ever getting hired in college, but oops, a month after I left college, I booked a major national tour. Oops. I mean, if we're really going to be honest, I booked it halfway through senior year. So oh, pat on my back. I know I hate myself too. No, the thing okay. is like, truly I, I was so lucky to get McKinley and, and Damien when I did, because I've always called myself a very specific odd type mm-hmm. and people don't know what to do with me. And I was lucky to find those roles or they found me, I guess. Um, yeah, how, how did Mean Girls come about for you? I guess Casey Nicola connection with Mormon, right? Yeah, I did a reading of the first ever like version of the first act when I was doing Mormon in New York. Mm-hmm. And Casey emailed me and was like, hey, will you come read for Damien? Um, they just have a first act. We're not going to be singing the songs. And the version that we did was completely different from what ended up being in the show. But that's when I met Tina and I was a huge fan. Like 30 Rock is still mm. one of my favorite shows of all time. And after the reading case, he was like, just so you know, and we really do this, you're, we're going to hire teenagers to play all these roles. And at that point, I was like 25, 26. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, bummer. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, that's not what they did. Um, <laughs> with I don't know us. what you're talking about. Every 17-year-old in America looks like Taylor Lauterman. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, her replacement was a teenager, is a teenager, Renee yeah, Rapp. That, um, I can't, which is no, shocking. We can't talk about that because that she Renee Rapp actually makes me mad. I listened to her sing World Burn, uh, like, I guess right in, when she went into the show, and I listened to it, and I was like, I can't listen to this woman sing ever again. She, oh, like, it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah like and it, she's so normal and cool. And like, I guess if I were 19 going on Broadway, I would be a monster and I would probably hmm. be terrible and terrified. And she's just like, what's up? That's, that's always the best. Um, when you hear that talented, successful people are like that. Um, are you allowed to 
spill any info on like what changes were made between the first reading and what we know now as Mean Girls? Or yeah, yeah, more I mean, Michael's everything. like sign your life away. He's like never, no, 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 no. It was I mean the thing that was in that first because it was literally just the first act and it was mm-hmm. a, a bunch of uh, Kate Rockwell I read for Karen actually, but it was people just calling in favors like now Benjamin and Tina and Casey just called in friends to read the parts. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I think that was still in the show. Um, when we opened up Broadway was What's Wrong With Me, Gretchen's song. Um, okay. And that was in the same spot in the beginning. And um, other than that, the beginning was different. I, Stupid With Love was the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, everything else was really different. And I couldn't even tell you, I have such a terrible memory. I feel like I'm, you know, you know 30 going on 75. But I, mm-hmm. um, I definitely remember it being hilarious and amazing and I wanted to do it. Yeah. I mean, Tina is known for her for her humor, in addition to her drama. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember who else was in that reading? Like any any fun names? Yeah, um, Patty Murin read for Regina. Um, <laughs> the actress who plays Anthippe on Kimmy Schmidt read for Janice. Oh, no way. Um, I don't know her name, unfortunately, but she was Honestly, amazing. neither do I, just Xanthippe. Yeah, Xanthippe, what a good name. Yeah. Um, that's all I can really remember, Kate Rockwell Red. Yeah, it was it was a good group of people and it was yeah. truly just an afternoon. It was so fun. Yeah. And then I was just like, I felt like something was being taken away from me. I was like, no, I want to yeah. do it. Um, and so it all worked out for the best. But no, to go back, like I, yeah, I was very lucky to get Mormon and Mean Girls, but I, I didn't, I was like, oh, I'm never going to work. I would go out every summer with my class um, I went to CMU in Pittsburgh and we were all like going to the auditions for the big summer stock and nothing ever happened for me. And I was like, well, and then I was lucky to get the audition for Mormon because of my teacher at school. Rory O'Malley originated that role mm-hmm. and a teacher I had who also taught Rory emailed him and was like, we've got this kid. He'd be great for McKinley. Can you get him an audition? And because Rory's like the most amazing, sweet person, he's like, yeah, sure. And sent my stuff to the casting director and she mm-hmm. called me in when I was a senior at CMU and um yeah it's just like it's a combination of luck and like being prepared right yeah absolutely but I mean some I'm not I don't like to be one of those people that's like if it's meant to be it's meant to be but you hear stories like that like you went to the right school with the right connection with the teacher and Rory O'Malley you had what was important at the time for that role so it's you know it is luck in some ways but also just certain things fall into place and it just makes sense you know yeah yeah no Um, I believe that yeah, Patty Lapone says in her memoir that when she was preparing for her final callback for Evita, she said to herself, this is what I was meant to do next. And I feel like that's it for all of us. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's what you've got to say. And then sometimes you just kind of know, I mean, right? You know, like, oh, this is not what I'm meant to do next. And it yeah. doesn't work out. Yeah. Have you ever had that like in an audition or even a callback for something where you go in and you're like, oh, this is, this is not me. Yo, definitely. I've been going in for a lot of TV stuff recently. And like some things I'll be like, oh, this is my part. Like I'm dead. I am this person. But with TV, mm-hmm. it's just, there's so much other stuff goes into it. You have to look a certain way and like you smile a certain way and have yeah. to be exactly who they pictured. Yeah. Um, it, but yeah, with theater, it's like, yeah, going for, most things you go in for, you're like, no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's truly a numbers game. Uh, with Mean Girls, has... No, I was going to ask a question. I was like, that could actually go very dark. Um, I, I'll tell you the question I was going to ask, but we're going to skip it, which is, um, has a f- has you have, has, have you ever had a moment with a fan, like at the stage door, where they reveal information about you to you that you did not know you had ever like released publicly? It's like, how do you know that? can't think of something specific but like that's stuff like that has definitely happened yeah where i 
I mean, the internet, everything exists on the internet, right? And so people mm-hmm. dig up things that you did in college that you didn't think existed anymore and mm-hmm. um, mention it or, um, yeah, it's like, it's it, it's hard to navigate things like the stage door. We had, so you know the book, uh, the the what the story of the movie um, is based on is this self-help book yeah about like it's called uh, queen bees and wannabes and it's mm-hmm. like a, a teen, like how to raise your teens in high school and that's what tina read and then she wrote mean girls and so the woman that wrote that book um she came and did a master class with not a master class like a huge talk back with us one day of um and she was talking about like dealing with fans and stage doors and not allowing them like getting close and appreciating that dynamic but not really um not engaging too much because it's so easy to like cross a line um, because I think when yeah. you see someone live on stage, it's like such an intimate thing to watch a live performance and then to get to meet them afterwards, which is like one of my favorite parts of doing it, right? You get to go yeah. out and like people clap for you again and you're on the street and like, it's sweet. And it's like, those are amazing memories. And uh, so many of my amazing, you know, growing up, going to stage or those are my favorite moments of my adolescence. Mm. And then you don't, it just, it becomes weird and sometimes a little too personal. And then some, the craziest thing though, truly that happened at the stage where people would say like, things that they thought were being they thought they were being nice and they were it's a major backhanded compliment of, of like mm-hmm. wow you're so much more attractive in person or like um someone was like i watched the bootleg and i like didn't care about your character but watching it live was like you were really you were such a standout <laughs> and i'm like well you know you're like supposed to see musicals live like yeah. that's you know the argument for bootlegs is it's like that's not the performance you know yeah um but yeah, that people say some weird things, and they don't really know. It's they're overwhelmed. And- no, um, no, I get that. It is stage door culture is very much a double edged sword, and I think, I mean, theater kids in general have always been known to have trouble sort of communicating their feelings, which is why we go into theater because it's it helps us express ourselves in many ways. Do you know uh, Danny Quadrino by any chance? I know of him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, we just had him. We, I just had him on the pod uh, last week and he was telling me when he was in Newsies, there was a girl who had like seen the show many, many times. And by like, I guess the 20th time when he went on for crutchy, I guess uh, he saw her at the stage door and he goes, Oh, Hey, good to see you again. She goes, yeah, you know, you, you, there, you were a little off on this one bit tonight. Like what happened? Trying to be like friendly yes. conversation. And, and then it was that moment where you have to draw the line in the sand and be like, no, yeah, we're friendly, but we are not friends and we are not coworkers. You don't get to give me notes, and like you don't. Yeah, get to yeah. Well, that that, that compl- I forgot that completely happened to me in Mormon when we were. I was in turn it off. You know, we do the mm-hmm. clap on, clap off, and the lights go off, and we change our pink vests. Mm-hmm. One time, the lighting board uh, messed up and like the lights didn't go off and so or it was like they went off and then my spotlight came on my face and so every time we clapped off we'd be in the dark like tapping mm-hmm. and all of our faces would go from like mormon happy faces to like oh my god i'm so tired i'm doing a tap dance right now and yeah. the spotlight came up on me and I, it never happened before and all of a sudden i was like ooh, and i had to like act in a spotlight in a dark stage and so one of the the super fans who c- came to like hundreds of shows afterward she's like i saw when you messed up the lights she was literally like, I saw you forget to change the lights. And I was like, baby, you know that's not me, right? Like, I'm not actually turning the production lights off. Um, oh, my yeah, God. But, like, yeah, they, they do. They, if they come to see the show a lot, and most of the time they're really respectful and awesome, but every now and then you're like, okay, we're, yeah. you know. And, and, even, and when those moments happen, those, like, backhanded moments, they, I think what's frustrating is they don't mean it to be – negative and you so you don't want to like snap at them 
right. uh, or I can assume anyway, I have only three fans myself and they're all very respectful, but <laughs> yes. I would, I, for I would now, have, for hmm? now, for now, I'm assuming you're the fourth. That's me. Thank you. Uh, no, I would assume you have to try to be respectful because you know, it's not coming from a negative place, but also kind of making it very clear what they said and did was not okay. Um, yeah, it's, you guys have a very devoted fan base, very rabid, which is like awesome in many ways, but again, has its downsides. Uh, and fuck i've i had a question for you like eight minutes ago but you were telling such a wonderful story i forgot about it you're such a well also like our like our fame is so small compared to like you know what i mean like that's the other thing it's like people like you're famous you're mingles i'm like maybe like a handful of people know who we are and stuff but compared to like you know movie stars and stuff it's insane like even then that's there's also kind of a danger there because the fan base for Mean Girls, the musical, is sizable for a Broadway musical, but not, you know, yeah. like 8 million followers like Lindsay Lohan has. But because of that, fans almost kind of feel territorial. It's like a club that they're in, I, wa- I want to say. Sure, sure. Like, I know the, about this person. You don't, yeah, you know. from the culture that I've seen online and whatnot. For example, I... <laughs> So I've been going down a huge YouTube rabbit hole with Tom Daly. I don't know if you know that he has a YouTube channel. Uh, no like british diver tom daly married yeah no i know who you're talking about yeah um i i mean i had no idea and i just fell into this this week and the number of comments that are just and like he is famous like he is worldwide famous yeah but the the fans or his fans i guess they have these inside jokes with each other and it's very they're very territorial about like his marriage to Dustin Lance Black and they they have jokes and I don't know like a no one can have them sort of way but like we know about this thing that they do and like you know about the things they let you see you don't know everything yeah it's all curated oh yes all social media is curated um yeah, that's the other thing. That's like uh, social media is a major part of this whole thing. I mean, you know, didn't they say that Be More Chill made it to Broadway because of social media and because of the fan base? Like they, they have power, you know, and like stuff. But then also it's people think they know you based on your presence on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's not true. And then also like, I don't know, jumping into a pandemic like this, it's like mm-hmm. you see a lot of content and everybody is like churning out stuff because they're bored and they mm-hmm. feel like they're not doing work and they've got to show every app. Like it's it's just, it's too much, right? It, uh, yes, it is too much. And believe me, I um, I am in that group of people that is just like churning out shit on Instagram because like, what else am I going to do? Um, no, I'm not, I'm not coming for you. Like this is cool. This no, is a podcast. You, oh, no, this you is don't. cool. You have, I'm, I wouldn't expect you to come for me. Like, you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just saying like, I, in terms of my stuff, you don't know what I'm talking about. Just, uh, I mean, like, I feel you because I'm in that same boat of people that are all in that mind frame of what else am I going to do? I might as well make a video today and like, Oh, sure. It. Yeah. But it's, yeah, but I it's totally fun. get it. I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. But like, what would this pandemic be like if we didn't have social media? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine the Spanish flu. That's all I can say. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's we wouldn't be that. mad at all the gays in Chelsea for for going out or in the West Village for yeah. Wait, did you see that? There's a video of somebody who had a house party the other day, no, and there's like 30 in people in their living room. And I'm like, are you fucking serious? It's insane. If I, if I can hold off on my orgies for a while, you cannot have a house party. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dog. So let's get into your obsession, Mister Mister Gray. Uh, okay. What is your obsession today? It's uh, the Meet Me in St. Louis film from 1944. 
Oh, yes. Referencing the year and everything. Starring the one and only Miss Judy Garland. Judy Garland, yeah. How did you first come to find this movie? Um, I saw it. I think my mom just like put it in my lap. She's like, watch this. And I, like I said before, I have a, such a terrible memory. Like truly, it scares me sometimes. Someone will be like, remember that day in fifth grade? And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but like she would, like, like I said, she, she introduced all of those movies to us. Like we would go to, you know, Barnes and Noble and pick up DVDs when DVDs started becoming a thing. But I had it on VHS first, I think. So I watched it when I was really young. But um, yeah, it, I was just so taken with, so much about it and mostly just Judy. I think even looking back on her career now as an adult, I still think it's one of her best performances. Oh, absolutely. I So when you told me that this was going to be your obsession, I rewatched it because I hadn't seen it in like, I'll be generous and say like 10 years. Gotcha. But you had seen it before. Oh, of course. I, I am I am a very well-versed homosexual. I, oh, I'm a long line of theater goers. I always say my dad is the um, gayest straight man you'll ever meet. Oh, love that. Where are you from? Uh, here, Manhattan. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. right. Upper East Side. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in, uh, in New York and New Jersey, sort of back and forth. But my parents were Upper East Side kids. My grandparents lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And like, I'm, I'm fourth generation New Yorker. So cool. we're, awesome. yeah, fourth generation Jewish New Yorker. So we know our theater. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, me, me and St. Louis, I knew pretty well. I would, I would say my Judy Garland obsession as a kid was Wizard of Oz, which is you know classic yeah classic traditional that and that and summer stock were my two big judy garland movies yeah which uh yeah, mine you, was, have you seen have you i seen have yeah I, i've seen summer stock like once i think back like back in the day but wizard of oz of course i've seen a million times but it was weird like i wasn't obsessed with judy garland herself it was just this movie it was mm-hmm. this movie and like i didn't even like i asked questions about who she was but when i was a kid i just thought she was esther smith you know mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, mean, I was that's... like, I'm so taken with this woman, and then later on, I was like, Oh, Judy Garland, what's her deal? Yeah, that was the same thing with me with Wizard of Oz. I was just so taken by, I think the color palette of Wizard of Oz is really what did it for me. The like blue against the red and the white with her costume, I just thought was so attractive, and I tried to copy it quite a few times, and yeah. that's what led to my first therapist as a child. But we won't go into that. <laughs> Why are you dressed as Dorothy? Uh, they couldn't understand that. I just wanted to feel pretty. Uh, How many? How often would you say you watch the movie now, like from childhood to present day? I own it on iTunes. And so every now and then, like uh, when I'm going to sleep, I'll turn it on. But Mm -hmm. like start to finish, I probably watch it like once a year, start to finish, like actually paying attention to it. But Mm -hmm. like every now and then I'll turn it on in the back room. It's background. It's like a, it's a comfort for me. It's like a, it's a very like, I'm a super nostalgic person Mm -hmm. and I'm a cancer. So like, I like my comforts and I like to feel like uh, safe and warm and like movies that I watched as a kid always do that for me so like meet me in St. Louis it's always like if I'm feeling weird or down or sad or whatever I'll watch that that is definitely a movie for all of that um yeah so let's let's break it down and get for the listeners who don't really know the movie super well and then we can sort of dissect it a bit this is really a trick question but what is meet me in St. Louis about I mean, it's literally just about this family in St. Louis and the dad It gets a job offer to move to New York. It's based on a true story. So like this woman wrote, I think a set of like 
like essays. In yeah, like, like short stories um, for the New Yorker, I think. Right, right, in a magazine, right. And it was just about her growing up in St. Louis. And the true story, the real story, actually, the family ends up moving to New York. And then, um, but in the musical movie, they didn't want to make that <laughs> the ending. <laughs> so they all stayed in St. Louis because they love it so much. But it's like a super simple story. And um, uh, Esther, um, who is the middle, like second oldest, second to oldest. No, wait, there's the-, the, she's, the she's the third oldest, third. second oldest daughter. Right, right, right. And she, um, that's, played, she's played by Judy and she's a love interest to the boy next door, which is, we can talk about that later too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a super s- sweet, simple, and it takes place at the turn of the century, which yeah. also I think was the beginning of my obsession with the turn of the century. Like I'm oddly kind of a history queen. Like I couldn't like give you facts and take an AP history exam, but like, I like, am so fascinated with like specifically the turn of the century, which also like New York city is a perfect place to, to, do oh, yeah. that and to be obsessed with that era and i think it all started with meet me in st louis even though it was filmed in the 40s like they did it really well and I thought yeah it was... i mean it's a it's it's like 1904 through a 1940s lens but it's not right. super uh what's the word i'm looking for anachronistic is that the right term where like they where they take liberties like they i feel like they they work really hard to make it feel authentic for the yeah moment. yeah yeah and i i read that um uh vincent minnelli was really like is his name Vincent? Why did I just? Play? I think it's Vincent Minnelli. Yeah, yeah I think it's right, Vincent right. Vincent the director. He was like uh, super, super adamant about making sure it was authentic and all mm-hmm. the set dressing and stuff. Like he knew all about like furniture and everything. Yeah, no, he was very much uh, dedicated to detail. Yeah, I was gonna say if you were to press me about what the movie's about, I would under pressure, like onto my head, it would be like it's it's about nothing, uh, only yeah. because like. So you say like the dad gets the promotion and they, they're going to move to New York. But in reality, that plot point doesn't come up until like an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. Like so many other things happen. Yeah, Uh, totally. But that's like the main, I guess the main. Yeah. That's the main conflict. Yeah. It is just about a family living in St. Louis and they go through all four seasons. And that's, that is how the movie is framed. And it's really lovely. Uh, They're also, so they have the oldest son, Lon, uh, which is short for Alonzo, I realized as I was watching it. Oh, oh, right. Did you say Alonzo? Yeah. Alonzo, yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, that I, I suppose that's a a name for boys in early 1900s America. Who are I white? I don't yeah, know. Who are white? That's, you know, fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it truly is the whitest family, whitest film yeah. in general. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. They have, then it's the oldest daughter, Rose. Not Judy Garland. Judy Garland is the next daughter, Esther. And Rose and Esther... So actually, no, we'll get to that in a second because I want, I want to ask your opinion on the character descriptions of all five children because I, I have some questions about them rewatching it. Oh, yeah. Uh, after them, they then have the two kids' sisters, uh, which a lot of movies at the time also really loved having like a much older sibling and a much younger sibling. Yeah. You know, like Philadelphia Story. Oh, totally. Uh, music man came later, but that whole like, oh yes, I'm 20 years older than you, but you're my kid sister. Yeah, brother. strange, huh? Yeah, yeah, I guess it was. I guess maybe there was a trend back in the day where, you know, parents be fucking, and then they think that their childbearing years are over, so they get like one last sex in, and yeah. that's the sex that like has the whoops baby. Right. Well, and that's before you could get your like tubes tied and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. I think we. Yeah. Um, birth control for women was very uh, complicated and dangerous at the time. So I, th- I think even women who didn't want to have children anymore 
were like, I will just chance it because I could totally die from right. trying to like get something shoved up there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and here's have, a little girl. Yeah, they have two little girls. Uh, Tootie's the youngest, and then what's the name of the other one? Uh, Agnes, I think. Yeah, yeah. Agnes, um, but she's like, unfortunately, just just brushed under the rug. <laughs> she's she's it's totally really a Jan. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Without a doubt, the Jan Brady. I um. To, it, the movie's mostly about Tootie and Esther, Judy's character. Yeah. And like in all the press, like I was looking up old pictures of the press and when they, you know, they debuted at the Astor Theater here in New York, which used to be on like Forty Fifth and Broadway, which is where the Marriott Marquis is now. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge picture of Tootie and Judy Garland, and like they made it about. Which is like, you know, I guess 2D is a kind of big part of the movie, but it was, they were really pushing as like, there's a little kid in this. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. so Judy Garland was definitely like the star of the movie. She was one of the biggest movie stars at the time. And I think they were really trying to push Margaret O'Brien, who played 2D, to be like the next big child star. Oh, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. They're like, Shirley Temple's like 13 now. She's over the hill. Right. Check out Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. MGM. Uh, she can cry on cue. Uh, you know what always fascinates me too is that Judy was only 21 when they started filming that and like at that point she was like she had had an entire career yeah and she like I like I know so many random facts like from the DVD or VHS extras and stuff but I rewatched them recently and it's like she was talking about how she didn't want to do it because she didn't want to play a little girl again and like it's like girl you were 21 like I was just 29 playing a 17 year old and she was like, I can't, I need to play all the roles now because she'd been working since she was like an infant almost, yeah. right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's it, how times change. Uh, but yeah, no, she she had been doing films for almost a decade by that point and she had been in vaudeville for years before then. So like yeah. she, she was, she'd been around. She had been around, around, around. Right. And I was reading about that too. And part of it was also like, she was, you know, she was more of a Lindsay Lohan back in the day like she was a party girl she she went out with a bunch of men she was like she basically went to mgm she's like i'm a woman now let me play women and they're like you'll play a teenager again and you'll fucking like it yeah yeah no and and it was i i think she was glad she did it because she met her husband vincent Mm -hmm. minnelli where you know they had liza yes the the marriage of vincent minnelli and judy garland gave us liza minnelli which is very important me and st louis gave us liza minnelli Yes, um, but <laughs> Meeting in St. Louis was the foreplay that led to Liza Minnelli. I think 100%. And like, there's some video of Liza talking about the movie, like, you know, a mm-hmm. couple, like maybe 10 years ago. But she was like, yeah, it, it, she thought uh, Judy, mom, said she looked, mom. she was, she thought she was the most beautiful in that movie. Like she had never felt beautiful on camera until she saw Meet Me in St. Louis. And cause like Vincent like framed her and everything. Like boy next door, she's in a frame. And like, she's always like glowing with that weird, like sort of, you know, 1940s movie glow and stuff. Yeah. But she does, I mean, she's stunning in that movie. And like- She really is. Yeah, no yeah, wonder she's like she the lightest bit of Vaseline on the lens. Sorry, I'm talking oh. over you. It's your obsession. You talk more. Oh my God, please. No, I feel like the talking over is more conversation. It's more like a conversation, <laughs> yeah. right? But it's but it's Zoom and you never know like how Zoom's going to take up the talking over. Like, are we going to sound like robots for five seconds? When I know. We talk and like, am I green or are you green? Who's the green square right now? You know yeah, I mean? that's exactly. Who's the blob of pixels? Uh, you know, yeah, that's very true. Judy Garland, her whole... I don't say trajectory. It makes it sound like she's a character, but one of her biggest struggles as a movie star was that she was always told she wasn't pretty. And if whatever we think of 
sexism in Hollywood today, it was tenfold back in Judy Garland's day. Like it truly was, you either were young and beautiful and petite, or you were old and dowdy and like played the mom. Like basically you had 10 good years as an ingenue if you started young enough. And then all of a sudden you switched to mom roles and maid roles. And if you- And the goofy girl had nowhere to live. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anywhere in between, it's like, we have no use for you. And Judy Garland, they never, the studio heads never really found her to be pretty, but she was so talented that they really tried to fit her into a mold that she didn't fit into. Yeah. Um, and Meet Me in St. Louis is one of the few films where she really kind of gets to have that treatment of the beautiful, bright-eyed ingenue. And yeah. that is Vincent Minnelli in his lens. And they did a whole retouching of her of her style up until yeah. then. I don't know if you know this. She, they, when she went into the studio system, which for those of you who don't know, because we actually have quite a few young listeners there was literally a studio system in terms of like quote unquote making stars. They would change sure. your name. They would make you get certain kinds of surgeries and makeup done. Rita Hayworth, for example, uh, had got her hairline raised by like an inch by doing insane. electrolysis. Absolutely insane. Judy Garland, they gave her cap, teeth caps and nose discs to like elongate her nose and make her face look more, uh, I guess, thin or, or whatever. But for Meet Me in St. Louis, they took out the nose discs. They took off the caps. They gave her a much more uh, natural look. They gave her yeah. highlights. And she looks stunning. She looks stunning. absolutely stunning. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, we sort of still see that today. I mean, there are more ingenues or leading, like, lo- like the love interests who aren't, like, cookie cutters, normal, mm-hmm. like, handsome, beautiful people. But Judy was not ugly by any means no and like the fact that they were like okay well she's not pretty but we'll give her the parts because she's so talented is insane yeah and also like that's what you want a lot something that's something that's so amazing about watching old films is that like it's the golden age of filmmaking where Mm -hmm. it is just beautiful people just looking beautiful and like saying lines dramatically which is like a part of the style but like Mm -hmm. that's not what we love about theater and film and art today it's like you connect i connect at least with people who are real and honest and like flawed and like Mm -hmm. that to me is like what i try to do as an actor that's what i try to do um that's what i respond to in shows and movies and stuff people who are like not perfect and um that's, I think, maybe why I liked Judy. And not that she's saying she was ugly or anything in the film, but I don't know. It just seemed like a very honest performance, as honest as you could get at that time, saying those lines, you know. That's why Ariel's my favorite Disney princess. Not because she's the most perfect, but she's the most relatable. It's so true. It is That's so, so true. true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, point is, relatability, as you said, is something that I think is very important to... Um, us as viewers, we, you know, we can idolize people. There, there, are, there are actors and there are characters where it is like the pretty person saying the pretty thing, looking pretty, and we can love it in sort of a, um, I don't know, like almost like sort of praying at the altar kind of element, but we don't sure. connect to it really. Yeah. That is, I think, why so many gays really do love Judy Garland because we relate so much to her uniqueness and her struggles and her yeah the struggle for sure like her whole life she's a tragic character she really is tragic hero yeah but it's also but then you also have so many wonderful performances she was also a phenomenal comedic actress which we i feel like we take for granted a lot Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, she was just as she was just a performer through and through. It was in her veins, in her blood. Absolutely. Like, I mean, the music in the movie, like 
Trolley Song. It's mm -hmm. an amazing performance. Boy Next Door is like probably my favorite. And then we got um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which was born in that movie. And it's, mm -hmm. I think, one of the best Christmas songs of all time. It really is. So, okay, I'm trying to, like, figure out how we can start as we, like, dissect into this movie. Uh, the first, let's say the first 45 minutes is essentially a series of moments in this family's life, basically going from, like, summer to, or, yeah, summer to Starts fall. summer, yeah. Yeah, summer to fall. And, you know, Judy Garland wears this wonderful blue and white striped dress. She's got long raven hair. She looks gorgeous. Um she's in love with literally the boy next door. She sings the song boy uh -huh. next door, John Truitt. I watching the movie yesterday. I was like, I feel like John could secretly be a Mo because he's just like, does not, he doesn't view Judy Garland sexually at all and doesn't pick up on any flirtatious cues. He's just like such a dolt of a man. And part of me is like, I wonder if he's just repressing so much homosexual urging or the urges. Turn of that, the century, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the things that most attract him to Judy Garland are like her, her, either her masculine qualities or the things that remind him of his grandmother. And I'm like, what better right. way right. to describe right. a gay man? Right. Or her voice. And he's just like, sing to me. Yeah. He's either like, sing to me, Judy. I want you. Or he's like, oh, you've got a firm handshake like a man. Or he's like, oh, your perfume reminds me of my grandma. And I'm like, He's a giant homosexual. He's I mean, a who could blame him? I mean, if I if I were around Judy at the time, I'd probably fall in love with her, right? I mean, yeah, I, I would. She married quite a few gay men, Vincent Minnelli included. So, like, clearly there was something that was made... it, did it come out that he was gay? I mean, not officially. I think he was truly. I think he was more asexual. I think he loved her as much as someone could without, like, maybe really truly being sexually attracted to her sure, yeah. um, but he but he was drawn to her and he wanted he wanted good things for her uh, he's always been considered the best of the garland husbands because sure. he was the one that treated her with the most respect right right but i yeah i do think the fact that he wasn't uh sexually compatible with her was what broke them up yeah. yeah, yeah. I I I never thought about John Truitt being gay, but that's I mean hilarious. Now that you're talking about it, I totally can see you unpacking that. But also, I think maybe the character's just not like fully like fleshed out. Sure. I feel like there's a lot that's missing from that, and it's kind of like, oh, we need someone to be a love interest. Let's do this. Let's make yeah. this a a thing. And he doesn't really have a personality beyond just being next door. <laughs> yeah, um, it's weird. It's actually the the gender roles are reversed in that movie because. You have Judy Garland's character, Esther, who I would not say Esther and Rose are incredibly complex characters, but they do have the most personality of everyone in the movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I maybe, say, I don't know, maybe the, the cook. Oh, Kate, Katie. Um, yeah, like, what is, Katie has a lot of personality, but also like not a ton of complexity. You know, she's, sure. she's wisecracking. She's, she's an Alice from the Brady Bunch. But awesome. is this just the Brady Bunch? It's, this is essentially the Brady Bunch in 1904 St. Louis. Yeah. And I guess Rose and Esther are kind of like a split of Marsha. And Tootie is a psychotic Cindy. Tootie is truly a psychopath. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel like nobody talks about this. The youngest daughter, Tootie. So, okay. If it seems like we're all over the place, it's because we are. It's really hard to kind of go beat by beat. If we were to go like frame by frame of this movie, it would be a very boring podcast because again, not a ton happens. Yeah. Um, but there's a running joke throughout the movie that the youngest daughter, Tootie, is obsessed with death and like blood and gore and murder. And the whole thing, the joke's supposed to be like, she's five and adorable, but she's like always burying her dolls in the backyard. And she and her sister like throw a dummy onto the trolley tracks and hopes that it goes off the rails. And I'm like, these children need to be put away. They're like yeah. a danger to society. Yeah, also the section of the film where that's Halloween or fall, yeah. I guess, is like my least favorite because of that whole storyline where 2D is about to get hit by the trolley and John Truett like saves her life and she screams, he tried to kill me, he tried to kill me because he literally like pulled her yeah. off of the street and she got a cut lip and then like Judy goes and beats him up and mm-hmm. all because Tootie was just being a pill. Yeah, and that, I, I think, and again, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, I have a lot of opinions. Um, I forgot all about that plot line until I rewatched it. And I think what even makes it worse for me is that Tootie fully knows that she's lying when she says it. I think part yes. of it is like being young and in shock. But when it's over, she's fully aware that what she told was a lie. She, there's no moment where she's like, well, at the time it felt like she's like, oh no, he didn't try to kill me. He did this. And it's like, you little fucking monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, and she's a kid and whatever, but yeah, I forgot. I I guess I didn't realize that she is just really obsessed with death and like dark, yeah. weird things, which is cool. Like, cool, kinda. Yeah, I mean, I love that she's not super frilly. I do like that the the two older sisters are so different from the two younger sisters, and that they both yeah. kind of are friendly pairs. And it's like, oh, our older sisters go off and do everything together because they're so close in age and they like to chase boys. Esther and Rose are truly the most dick-hungry women I've ever seen in a golden age movie. They're, they All they are doing in the entire movie is chasing the D. And, oh my God, 1,000%. Uh, yeah. yeah. And one of my favorite jokes is, uh, so Rose, the older sister, she's like, I guess she, she's constantly trying to get proposed to by this one guy. But until that happens, she's like going to play around and see like who else might you know, she can land on. And there's always some new guy in the movie that that is following her that she meets. And you see her come home. I think it's during it's during the Halloween segment. And Judy Garland's like, who's that man you're with? And she's like, oh, uh, I bumped into him at the ice cream parlor. And, she, and Judy Garland goes, by accident? And Rose goes, almost. Like, <laughs> Just thirsty. Just so thirsty. Thirsty at the turn of the century. I mean, who wouldn't be? Yeah, honestly? and Judy Garland had the audacity to say out loud that she's going to let John Truitt kiss her at the party tonight. <gasps> oh my gosh, I know. Like, what did she say? She's like, men don't like um, all the bloom rubbed off. Yes, and she says, personally, I think I have too much bloom. <gasps> uh, what a, that's a really good line. It is. I, I mean, have too much bloom. I'll Esther and Rose would have gone into porn if it, that were available in 1904. <laughs> they, they, Just left. That's like uh, Meet Me in St. Louis too. It's called like the brothel days. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I'm surprised that um, in the Sex in the City movie, Samantha doesn't watch Meet Me in St. Louis because she would connect to Esther and Rose so much. Wait, she does watch it, right? Carrie does, but not Samantha. Oh, Samantha doesn't write. Here yeah, right. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I just, I was watching and I was like, oh, there should have been a scene in Sex and the City when Carrie gets this Meet Me in St. Louis DVD from Jennifer Hudson. Right, right, right. Like at the coffee shop, she's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I should watch. It's like a boring old movie. And Samantha's like, oh, honey, no. Those Darling. two, 
<laughs> Those two girls want all the dick. Mm. Like that's that. true. No, Rose is Samantha. They are the same, I think. They are. And Esther is kind of like a, a Carrie-Samantha combo. Yeah. Um, maybe a little Miranda in there, too. She does give a lot of wisecracks. Ginger, right, yeah. Yeah, and Ginger. Chug, chug, chug went the motor. Bump, bump, bump went the brain. Thump, thump, bump went my heartstrings. When he smiled, I could feel the car shake. He tipped his hat and took the seat. He said he hoped he hadn't stepped up on my feet. He asked my name, I held my breath. I couldn't speak because he scared me half the day. Question for you. So you brought up the trolley song earlier. The trolley song is probably up with Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas as like the two most famous songs in that movie. Right. So I'm going to say something and then I want you to sort of frame the song for our listeners so they can determine for themselves if I'm right. I always assumed that the trolley song was a standard that they put into the movie. Um, the way like how jukebox musicals would do the same thing, like um, Mamma yeah. Mia has winner takes it all to make it fit for the scene. So they like wrote a trolley scene to fit for the trolley song because I thought it was already a previously written song. Because listening to it, the song doesn't actually make sense in the scene because right. Judy Garland is singing about something that didn't happen. Right. So can what happens in the scene so I can hear it back and I can decide and our listeners can decide if I'm right or wrong about this. What's, what's happening in this in trolley. The trolley song? Well, she's, she's just trying to crush on John Truitt and he misses the trolley and she's talking about how on the trolley you can like fall in love. Right. And then she's like fantasizing about him when he's not there. And then by the end he shows up and she's like, Oh, foot and mouth. Did you hear me sing about you? I think that's all it is. Right. Is it? Cause she sings it all like past tense, like it just happened. Um, you know, the, like the lyrics are like, I went, uh, I went to get a jolly hour on the trolley and she goes, uh, he was Lost quite the handsomest of men, like, like this whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's like, I mean, it's interesting because this is before musicals really had music that forwarded the plot. And maybe this is one of the more, like this was the closest we had been to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like anything goes before that was just like, you know, a bunch of songs in a show that sort of don't fit, right? Like mm-hmm. Anything Goes was, what year was that? Was it, that was in the 30s, like 38, 39. Right, right. And then, so like, this is at least a little bit closer. Like, she's at least singing Boy Next Door. She's singing Trolley and she's on a trolley. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like it's a little, and like, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Those were written for the movie. But yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't really forward the plot, like, like she's not saying like, I want John Truett and I wish he were here, right? Like it's, there's something <laughs> please, like left you to should, be imagined. You should rewrite the lyrics to be exactly that. So it's, right. that's, that's exactly what it is. No, I'm not a lyricist. Um, it's a, that's actually a really good point. So this movie came out in 44. It was made in 43, which is right. the year that Oklahoma came out. So this movie was sort of, came out around the time that musicals had to kind of, we're starting to repurpose what songs did so it is the songs in the movie do they don't forward the plot but they do kind of give introspection on the characters uh even if like nothing really changes by the end of the song like there's no like boy next door it's just an expression of how she's feeling in the moment like nothing changes by the end of it you know it's not like 
it's not like the song she were to say like i don't love the boy next door and like sings i don't love him but until the end she's like oh i love him right it's a it's an old school musical where it's you know it's one thought for three minutes and it's judy garland so we're okay with it but yeah i was (sighs) the trolley song is the only thing that kind of bugged me because it is such a great song and i i guess like i forgot what was happening in the scene because she's on the trolley she's supposed to meet him he almost misses it and she gets all sad and then she sees that he's like running after the trolley so he's trying to make it and then yeah he sings to all the people to all the descamisados on the trolley about um this wonderful like meet cute on the trolley that she quote-unquote had with john truitt but i guess it is a fantasy but i didn't get the fantasy i wasn't living I wasn't living the jantasy because it all was sung in past tense. And yeah. I was like, none of this happened, bitch. Yeah, no, you're totally right. But I think like, even as a kid, when I watched it and even now, I don't, I don't think about that or care about that because it's just, it's just watching Judy Garland perform. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's what people wanted back then more than anything, just like a really good animated performance that maybe didn't have anything to do with the story they were watching. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you, uh, you think about how we're just so conditioned nowadays to like critique everything within an inch of its life. Like we are like, uh, if it doesn't have this, this and this, it's terrible. Right. You know, yeah. and I mean, we're rightfully so, because now we have like a very different um, eye for like, what is good theater and storytelling but yeah. like at the time it was just like probably the ultimate like oh judy garland saying anything like sign me up yeah. right uh, and, and and don't get me wrong like i the movie still very much works and i am not trying to critique it in a way of like i don't know i'm not i i hate the online critiques of shit where it's like this part's stupid and here's why like um right. there's those videos like everything wrong with insert blank movie in 10 minutes and they like ding all the things right. it's always it's always straight boys it's like straight white boys who are like everything wrong with beauty and the beast in four minutes number one candlesticks don't sing and i'm like go fuck yeah. yourself Devin. so fun to watch right yeah mm, i love it so it's more that when you watch something with sort of uh, more experience every year and with a with some distance you can still love it and then sort of like think what what is actually happening here because some there i mean there are also moments where i'm like i don't know if that would fly today necessarily for example the under the bamboo tree song um which i'm not like i'm not pc police that is not i yeah um and you have to take into account the time that the movie was made as well as the time period that they're representing but there is a whole song where judy garland and tatum o'neill are like let's sing a song for the guests and they do it's supposed to be like a Native American love song, I guess. Is that what it's supposed to be? I don't know. I have no idea. They're doing like the stereotypical. Yeah, it's it reminds me very much of like a like a living room performance of Uggawug from Peter Pan. Yeah, <laughs> that's what, that's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah, um, I mean, when I I grew up, growing up in Georgia in like the 2000s, we did you know what's it called um. Uh, South Pacific, you know, and with all white people. I mean, even just in the past five years, like there's so many things that like you really can't do anymore and right, rightfully so. But this was the forties and mm-hmm. took place in the turn of the century. So yeah. I think that's something that is important is someone's if, so actually, no, you know what? Let me, let me rephrase that. What, how would you, um, I don't want to say defend cause that's, that's argumentative. For someone who's listening to this podcast who's never seen this movie before and is going to go watch it, 
what would you say to them to prepare them to get in the right mind frame for it? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a good question because like I just know it so well. I think if I were a first time viewer of this, I'd be like, this is what is what am I watching? Who cares about these people? And so it's kind of hard for me to sell it to people because I am just, it's so nostalgic for me. So it's like, it could be the worst movie ever. And it's like something that brings me so much joy. But I think if you love Judy Garland or respect her in any way, I think it's just like a love letter to her talent. I think she just like, it's just, she's so effortless. And like, as an actor, it's just, I think that one of the biggest, um, like beyond talent is like having charisma is so important and to be easy to watch is so important Mm -hmm. and she just has that in spades and so I don't know that's that's kind of I think if if someone were like why should I watch this I was like you can watch Judy Garland be pretty amazing and sing some iconic songs yeah it's like I think that like movies were just like concerts that were on tape back then you know people wanted to see Judy sing some songs they're like oh throw a storyline in there who cares right yeah I mean it was on Broadway in the nineties. Right. And I'm sure that I think it did. Okay. But you it know, did, yeah, it didn't do great. It was, um, yeah, it was late eighties, early nineties and Broadway was kind of like dipping a bit and they thought, Oh, here's a safe bet. Old movie that everybody loves, super famous. And they threw it on stage and everyone's like, mm, yeah. not the same. Yeah. And it probably, you saw all the plot holes and a lot of things that were missing from it on stage. I'm, but I mean, it is just like, it's a good classic movie musical. And it's truly why I like, one of the big reasons of why I wanted to be, become a performer. Um, and I've, I've never sung Boy Next Door, but that will absolutely be a part of my one man show when I'm 70 years old. I was about to, well, why wait till 70? No. I don't know. I always feel like people who do one, uh, one person shows when they're younger, it's like, well, what stories do you have to tell? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get Partly. that. But I mean, You've lived so much in your first 30 years. You have so many stories to tell. A couple. Uh, more, more, I mean, granted, by 30, Judy Garland had like 90,000 more, but oh different person, different time. Uh, <laughs> have you sung any of Judy's stuff in like concerts or in public or anything like that? No, I haven't. Um, Josh and I are going to record something for, um, for a, a charity, for LGBT charity oh, coming lovely. up and we're going to do the i think we're going to do the barbara judy happy days are here again do it who's barbara but i don't josh will be barbara <laughs> i think that, that i'm gonna go sense. with with judes i mean you're both goyams so like it's i, I yeah but, both high drag for sure we have like yeah. a set of three heels in our living room that we just keep out for us to put on whenever we're feeling down uh See, this is why I need a gay roommate, but I'm about to live with my mom, who is essentially the same thing. (laughs) Just put on her heels like when you were a babe. (sighs) Bitch, my feet are too big now. Uh, I know, it's really really unfortunate. Um, (laughs) What was I going to say? The nostalgic factor of this movie, besides the fact that it's like your childhood... um, there's like there's an, I feel like there's a nostalgia factor about this movie in general, maybe because it's about an earlier time than the movie took place already. Do you, nostalgia? I feel like is a very emotional feeling, right? Like there's not a lot of logic to it. It's just about a connection, right? Right. So, with that said, could you try to explain that connection for you in regards to this movie? Like not just oh, it's my childhood, but like maybe what exact Judy Gar- Garland aside, like what about this movie connected you to it? Because there's like stretches of time where she's not on screen, but you still watch it. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Hmm. I think, yeah, I don't, I think maybe that, that's why I've always been fascinated with like the turn of the century or like, um, I don't know. It just seems that there's so much that we don't have like documented. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so like, we don't, we didn't have video tape or, you know, a lot of things. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like a mystery in a way. And there's something I like love about the simplicity of the time and like the um, the romance of it almost. That is something that I think is missing from my daily life, living as an actor in New York City in 2020. Yeah. And so there, it's like, it's, I'm, yeah, I think I'm a romantic and I think I, I just have this weird longing for like, days past you know what i mean um and yeah i can't really put my finger on it i actually haven't thought about it and that's why you're sort of catching me off guard because i don't i don't know it's like you're right it's a feeling for sure like and it's definitely something that um it's it's hard to explain i guess this podcast is essentially the musical theater gay equivalent of gotcha journalism i'm like (laughs) you can't you really like this movie yeah (laughs) no i i think you you really kind of touched on it just despite all like the strides we make in our lives and as and as our society has like as i feel like we've we're constantly dragging our world into more um, modern times, for lack of a better term. And while the advantages of all that are fantastic, everyone does long for simplicity. And I th- that is, I mean, we're not to become political here, but that's really the root of a lot of um, voters in this country who voted for, you know, the ass-eating orangutan, which is at the root of it, they, you know, they were, they're, there's a simplicity there's a simplicity that they want and we all do but we also want to make sure that everyone can get it whereas no for sure and like yeah. we've progressed in so many amazing ways and like mm-hmm. technology is important and so there's so many things that um are changing for the better obviously but i think like sometimes we go too fast right like i think yeah like, the social media and the internet and like there's so much that you have to keep up with nowadays and then Mm -hmm. you watch a movie where it's like what my biggest issue is like when am I going to shampoo my hair today and like (laughs) I had to get the shampoo from downtown and like you know like is the ketchup too you know salty or too sweet like you know like shit like that you're just like oh my gosh like imagine waking up and just being like Oh, you don't have a phone, you don't check your Instagram, you don't have your email, and you're just mm-hmm. like, well, what am I literally going to do today? And they had no, they didn't know any better. And they I didn't. think like, you know, ignorance is bliss. And like, you know, if- <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's also why we, we are always nostalgic for Disney movies, especially older ones. Uh, not, and, and when I say older ones, I mean literally anything before 2000. So like anything yeah. Renaissance or Golden Age, because- while there is something to be said for the modern meta take that Disney films have taken, the older ones kind of take you away into this fantasy. They just sort of sweep you up and you forget where you are for 90 minutes. And there's something really addictive about that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, And especially in the gay community, like a lot of, everyone's like, well, why do gay people like Disney or why do gay people like Judy Garland or these old movies so much? And it's like an escape. And I think not that everyone lived like a traumatic life. Like you were raised in Manhattan. I was raised in Georgia, but I had very supportive parents and I always felt like supported. It was difficult, of course, but like Mm -hmm. I knew I was different. And and I think that like you long for this, you know, fantasy life. How can I ignore the boy? 
her next door. I love him more than I can say. Doesn't try to please. So you were saying, in terms of like Meet Me in St. Louis, there's sort of this like unspoken rule that if presented well enough, we kind of, th- we are willing to throw logic out the window, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's, if it's stylish enough, if the music is good enough, you can sort of forgive anything, yeah. which is actually why I feel like so many people have shat on the Cats movie because it is presented so poorly that sure. all the weirdness of it comes to the forefront. Like if everyone sang beautifully, if everything was shot beautifully, we would be like, yeah, sure, whatever, it's Cats. But because yeah. it's like such an odd you know, I haven't seen it yet. I've now seen it twice. Um, I saw it once in theaters, drunk off my ass, and then I saw it again recently because John Krause came on to talk about that as his obsession. So I, similar to this episode, I was like, well, let me rewatch it to like refresh my memory. Yeah. Uh, what are, are there any moments in Meet Me in St. Louis for you that maybe aren't iconic in the way that like the trolley song is, but you want people to sort of pay attention to for like a first time viewing like maybe smaller moments or not always remembered moments that like for you are are just really impressive or iconic oh yeah i mean like um i love watching people who aren't the focus especially in older movies like the not extras because they actually were there a lot but the the girls in the trolley song that are just watching judy like i'm obsessed with watching like these girls like act and they're like, I'm with Judy Garland right now. Or like, um, there's a girl that like plays the trumpet and like the party scene. And, like she has this whole arc where like they throw her trumpet and then she's happy again. Like, I don't like stuff like that. I'm always so like tickled by people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what else? Yeah, I don't, I, I can't think of anything specific. Um, yeah, I um, the moment that like always makes me cry is obviously well. It's funny because we brought up the Family Stone, but in the Family Stone they watch Meet Me in St. Louis, and like at the end she's watching Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, and I know that we all like that's like the most whatever iconic, mm-hmm. one of the most iconic moments from the movie. But they the lyrics originally in that song were like We're moving to New York and you'll never see St. Louis again. Like the lyrics were kind of like dark and a little more dramatic and whatever. Um, and I love learning stuff like that because it ended up, they were like, you, she can't sing like all of this tragic, ter- these terrible things to this little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they changed it to make it like more sweet and PC. Also, there's like some crazy story about how they made um, the made Tootie cry for that. And like someone said that Vincent Minnelli was like, your dog's dead, now go do the scene. <laughs> Which is terrible. Like, could you imagine, like, as a little kid? And then Margaret, the actress, was like, he never did that. He would never do that to me. They said that, like, if I, they would have to put the fake tears on me to cry, and that Mm -hmm. made her cry because she wanted to be, like, a good actress or whatever. I just love learning that little, those little things and then watching a movie. But it's funny. I never thought about someone watching it for the first time because it's always been something on my radar. You know what I mean? That's something that I always feel like is important to give to the children so to speak, because I mean, I was raised on classic movies and classic shows. So I was always keeping up to date with what was going on with movies and theater as it was happening while also learning about older stuff. So there was never, right. uh, 
I, I never had to think about that. But I think about a lot of people who don't really know much about Judy Garland and have never seen Mimi and St. Louis, have never seen Singing in the Rain or Gigi. And I'm, and I'm like, these are, I mean, these movies have stood the test of time for a reason, for different reasons, but yeah. Um, yeah. no, that's important to watch them. Uh, yeah, did, so you are somebody who likes to sort of read up on facts when on movies that you like or movies that you're watching yeah randomly when we were on tour with mormon in st louis we a friend of mine we got into our rental car and tried to find the house or whatever but Mm. it doesn't exist anymore the original house that the whole story was based on and they like tore it down in the 90s or something that is very rude and a hate crime in my eyes no right but we like drove around st louis we're like it's like uh we found the address and we're like looking over it's cute that's up there with the dude who stole the third pair of the ruby red slippers from some museum have you do you know about that no what happened no i don't know that so there were three pairs of the ruby red slippers in wizard of oz when they shot because like you know it was a super long shoot and she was going to wear them out uh so they had to make three and each one each pair was kept in uh different museums one i think was like there's an mgm museum there's a there's a history of film museum and then there was a judy garland museum in her home state and I think the pair that was in that museum got stolen in like the eighties and have yet to be recovered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Total hate crime. Tragic. I know so that's, in, could you imagine like stealing something like that? <laughs> getting uh, away with it. And getting away with it. Oh my God. It's, it's a gay oceans 11. Did you, so speaking of facts about this movie and speaking of 2D, did you know that there was a moment when Margaret O'Brien wasn't going to be 2D? There was going to be another girl. No, I didn't. Oh, so this is, this part is crazy. So it, Margaret O'Brien was cast and her mom tried to negotiate a higher salary because she's like, my daughter's going to be the next big thing. And MGM's like, yeah, right. There are 9,000 girls who can cry on cue, like go away. So as, a, but they, but they did want her. So as a way to kind of uh, call their bluff, they hired a girl who was like the daughter of one of the crewmen. And they're like, this girl's going to be our new Tootie. And the day that girl was going to start filming, her mom kind of waved a white flag and said, no, no, you know, you can have Margaret. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So like that other girl didn't get to shoot, um, like made it to set, didn't shoot. And so Margaret O'Brien came on and on Margaret O'Brien's first day of shooting, the father of the other girl who was like one of the lighting men of the film tried to quote unquote accidentally let go of a light. So it would hit Margaret O'Brien and then missed her by inches. And that man, they MGM then forced that man to go to an insane asylum for like a month. Oh my gosh, that's insane. So if you ever are questioning your choices, Gray, about like whether they're healthy or not, ask yourself, did I try to crush a six-year-old with a giant light today? Could this send me to an insane asylum? Also, yeah. just a month in an insane asylum is not going to cure anybody. No, but it was 1943 and they were like, yeah, send him away for a month. He'll be fine. And then he's back on set. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Um if someone, so say someone goes to watch this movie and then they love it, what are some other suggestions you give them? Um, after watching this movie? Yeah. Oh, other movies to watch? Yeah, if they were like, great, I love this movie so much. What other Golden Age movies can I watch? Oh gosh, like I always loved um, Oklahoma movie. Oh, there's actually the, a song that was cut from the show called boys and girls like you and me or something that mm-hmm. was like the final song was cut from Oklahoma too because Oklahoma just opened on Broadway mm-hmm. but I love the film of Oklahoma I mean the, the issue is like like you were saying today like everything is obvious 
necessarily so politically correct, but like you watch any of these old movies and you find so many things that are wrong with them. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, it's, I think it's, it's why it's hard for like a ge- the generation below us to watch these movies. Cause you're like, how did this get made? You know, like, I can't believe, you know, you watch Oklahoma or any of those things like the sound of, I mean, West side story. Do you know what I mean? Natalie yeah. Wood is not a Puerto Rican woman. No. Um, but like that's when we were growing up. I mean, you didn't care about that because you didn't know any better. But it is, it is, it makes things harder to watch. But I think if you just say it's a different time, it was a different time. You kind of get through it. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I meet me in St. Louis. What else? What other movies? Like um, Carousel was a big one for me growing up. Um, State Fair. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of, I mean, the, obviously, um, Wizard of Oz is like, mm-hmm. the, Stars Born. I mean, I loved watching all three Stars Borns, um, after the most recent one came out. Of course and, you did. Like, Have you seen the original, original, the one that has no music? No, no, I didn't watch that. I just watched, you know, Judy, Barbara, and yeah. Gaga. Gaga. Of the, so of the three, which one do you think is the best objective movie? And then who do you think is the best objective Esther? I mean, honestly, I think the most recent is like the best movie. Yeah, um, I, it really got me. Like, it's good. Uh, we saw our, like our, almost our whole cast went after a show once and saw *Stars Born*, and by the end, we were all sobbing. The thing that did take it take me out of it though was when like Lady Gaga is like an unknown whatever bartender, and she like smiles in the beginning. You see all the work she's had done, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like the you know the injections and stuff in her cheeks, and you're just like, oh, this girl is like a famous celebrity. Yes, um, she does have a lot of Botox in that movie, which is, you know, I'm, that is not a judgment call, but as you said, she's supposed to be this, like, hard from the other side of the, of the tracks girl, has yeah. never had a break, and I'm like, you have about $50,000 worth of Botox in your face right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, which just took me out of it slightly, but I thought she was so amazing. Um, I don't know, I think probably Judy is my fave. Judy's so, like, she's so, like, emotionally available. Like, her mm-hmm. eyes, I mean, they just without even I don't know I just love hearing about I know this sounds like I'm fucking obsessed with her but I guess that's what the podcast is about but there's something about her just essence on screen that just really really pops to me and you just want you just feel for her you want to like hold her and just (laughs) tell her it's gonna be okay baby yeah yeah no your heart breaks when you when her heart breaks on screen your heart breaks and oh my gosh yeah she sings with all of her might and once and and again she also is a very funny actress if you watch um the harvey girls which is not a very good movie but she is so funny in it there's a scene where she's like the uh there's a scene where she has to go into a saloon because the saloon she like is working for this restaurant and the competing saloon across the street stole all of their meat that day like that got shipped to them and everyone in the restaurant's like oh well you know we can't do anything about it it's just a bunch of cowboys over there and judy garland's like hold my hat and she goes over with two loaded guns and she's so tiny against all these men she's like and she's she's improvising she's like okay you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna show me the meat and uh, you're gonna bring that meat back over to the restaurant, and uh, yeah, this this is what's happening. This this is what's happening, and it's so funny. Oh, hilarious! I've never yeah. seen. Is that with Mickey Rooney? No. Uh, no. If this is a post, Meet Me in St. Louis, Judy. So she's very petite, uh, almost like scary thin, actually. And I think a- after Wizard of Oz, I think she only did one or two more Mickey Rooney movies, and then she kind of went on her way. 
Right. Uh, have you I mean, seen Mean My Shadows with Tammy Blanchard? Um, of course I have. Right. That I mean, is, yes, I, I'm a giant homosexual. Uh, who I, played the older Judy in that? Judy Davis. Judy Davis, right. And I was just watching that last night There's because they did the whole like filming of the trolley song in mm-hmm. Me and My Shadows. And there's like a side by side of like Judy doing it and them recreating it. It's mm-hmm. really interesting, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. And very on point. And Tammy Blanchard looks exactly like a young Judy Garland. Identical. It's bizarre. Like every drag queen in the world saw that TV movie. And when Tammy Blanchard came on screen in the Dorothy getup, they all just dropped their wigs and went, well, I give up now. I can't touch this. She's it. Um, Fun (laughs) fact, my roommate, Josh, who we've talked about a million times, um, is in, well, was before things were shut down, is in Little Shop of Horrors with Tammy Blanchard. Uh, And after he joined the cast and watched the show a couple nights, he came home and was like, great, I have to tell you something. You are Tammy Blanchard as Audrey in Little Shop. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, because I always, I've always said I have my mother's face. Like I have like a little nose and cheeks. Like I would look great in drag mm. and I don't look like a masculine man. And except for my like build and physique, which not is not toned by any means. I'm just saying I look like I should be a linebacker in Alabama or something. But like, he was like, you have the face of Tammy Blanchard. And um, I think now that that's the biggest compliment ever. And then somehow Absolutely. maybe, I'm so, maybe I'm almost so... Judy Garland. I'm so upset I didn't get to see Tammy Blanchard in Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, I, that was too. that was one of my biggest hopes was to see that. Maybe and, they'll, I mean, hopefully they'll come back. Oh yeah, I have no doubt that it will. Uh, whether she'll be with it when it does come back, I I don't know. I don't know what her schedule is like. But I mean, when she right. was announced, and I mean, I do. I had some p- friends who saw it and didn't care for her, and then some friends who saw it and did care for her. Weirdly enough, the gays in my life did not care for her. The women in my life all loved her. So I don't know what that oh, disconnect is. Yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't make that point if it wasn't like so consistent, um, yeah. like literally every time. But with the moment she was announced- The gays can be vicious. The gays as, the, as critics can be vicious. Yes. And unforgiving. That was the, my biggest, say what? And unforgiving. Like yeah. if something is quote unquote iconic to them, it's, you know, how dare someone else try to come like fill in their shoes, yeah. like Patty yeah. and Evita was, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my biggest fear when- playing Damien I was like oh my god all the gay people are gonna come and be like you have to represent the gay people which is like <laughs> Damien was so many of us in high school and I remember mm-hmm. watching that movie I was like oh this is me like I'm connected to this person mm-hmm. and I was just like oh my god I've gotta you've gotta be like a gay you know figure yeah. in a musical like you better make it good and I, yeah I think that's it's just how did you not have a panic attack before you went on stage every night thinking how you were going to represent the gay community right since Damien does that right yeah. no I mean I think the gay people related more to Regina George and the plastics than they did to Damien it's true I, I try I don't know I was really like I tried really hard to not make him like super stereotypical I tried to make him not like just like a one-liner yes mama kiki blah blah yeah. you know what I mean like I didn't think that that's who he was I think he's no. just someone who's like confident and comfortable in his own skin at an early age and that's why people like him yeah, the, the, the complexity and making sure that everything felt organic. I get that. Uh, fun fact, um, we'll wrap this up shortly, but uh, I brought up in a most recent podcast with uh, Gabe Gibbs, actually, who you did, you did his podcast. Yeah, we did a, Mormon together. Yeah, I love yes, him. Yes, and Mormon, yeah. Uh, I had matched with someone on Hinge a while back who was, we were having a really great talk and whatnot. 
um and this was this was just when lockdown started so like we were not and he was in philadelphia with his sister so like no chance of ever meeting for a while but texted we talked on the phone once or twice and he was like i'm gonna listen to your podcast and then said after he listened he was like i don't think we should talk anymore because i listened to your <gasps> podcast and you don't seem like a nice person and because oh my, my normal co-host john and i we you know we banter back and forth and we and we say some bitchy things to each other but always with love in the way that gays do and sure, it's your podcast you can say whatever you want exactly and you know sometimes we'll we'll do uh what I've started to call like our Becky voices or like, mm, like, have you eaten today? Cause I don't know if you should eat anymore today. Like we would do shit like that. And yeah. like, well, like what Katya does on, uh, where she's like, mm, I'm, my body's changing. I'm not going to apologize for it. And yes, yeah. so much drag race on this podcast, not, not just with you, like all the time, but I brought that up to him and I said, like, it's, that's part of what we do. And, you know, many facets to me in that respect, like I try to listen, I try to talk, but sometimes I can be catty. And he goes, well, do you think that that's a positive representation of the queer community by doing that? To which I almost shouted into his ear, I can't wake up every morning and think, how am I going to represent the queer community when I walk out the door? Cause I'd kill myself. Yeah, I can only sure. think about how I'm representing me. Yeah. And and I don't mean that in a selfish, selfish way. Like I try to be respectful in general. Um, and if I say or do something that someone could say is like stereotypical of the gay community, it's like, well, that's how I am in this moment of my life. And like the, in this 10 seconds, yeah. uh, which is what I related to with your Damien, which was, you know, there was like moments of like Yas Mama Kiki and then other moments that were quietly introspective. Like we all are. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know a hundred percent. Like that's, uh, that's definitely a part of me. Like Josh and I are terrible to each other through laughter and like you know what i mean that's yeah it's also a huge part of just being gay is like developing that really quick wit and sense mm -hmm. of humor because it's your coping defensive mechanism do you know yes. what i mean yeah josh and i but, were texting literally yesterday and we agreed that i was garbage which he then signed off with with a big heart so like that is that is gay yeah. friendship <laughs> that's it yeah, that is. It's like, I, you know, I, to my best friends, I say like, hey, bitch, what's up? How you doing? You know, what I, like, it's just, yeah. it's a, it's a part of it. And I think that some people, I, I've had like straight friends who come over who are like, I, don't, I would never talk to my friends the way you talk to Josh. And Josh and I are like, well, it's, it's, it's through, a, it's through love. And it's, mm -hmm. um, it's because we sort of have a shared experience almost. But yeah, there's like, it's also, uh, I think, yeah, like going back to the role and Damien, I think that like, for it to seem, um, I don't know, like a stereotype in any way, I guess I said that earlier, it seems like I'm like looking down on that, but it's not like, it's just, I wanted him to be a living, breathing human being and not like a vessel of a gay, like, you know, like some weird gay uh, robot, which is yeah. sometimes I think what we yeah maybe can become as a community is like, we all have the same vernacular and like vocabulary and whatever. And like, it becomes very, um, canned almost but mm -hmm. it's also like a huge part of our lives yeah it's definitely part of our vocabulary and our love language now and i think the distinction is to know when it's if when it's truthful or when it's fake and if it's fake like to not let it last for very long because we all get yeah. caught up in the moment yeah, not to bring it back to Drag Race, but it's like the reading challenge. It's like, you mm. know. Yeah, it's brought with love. And it actually, to bring it back to Mimi and St. Louis, it's partly why we let certain, why those movies kind of get a, a pass from time to time, because you know that it's meant with love. It's not meant to be uh, done with any derision. Like, as you said, when you watch West Side Story now, if it's for the first time, you're like, oh my God, like, how did, how did they get away with Natalie Portman playing a Puerto Rican? It's like, well, 
it, that was sort of the time of Hollywood. There were very few uh, ethnic actors of her star quality, which which is a whole other subject of, you know, the inner racism of Hollywood and just the fact that they wouldn't yeah. let people who weren't white be successful. But yeah. at the same time, like the making of West Side Story, that movie still stands the test of time because her portrayal of being Puerto Rican is not meant to be nasty. She's doing the best she can. She's doing right. it with respect. So you don't watch it and go like, oh my God, this is so racist. You're watching it like, I mean, we wouldn't do this today, but I can, I can still watch the movie and, and get past it for the most part. A hundred percent. Yes. See how I brought that back around to the subject? Look at you. (laughs) Look at me. Um, Great. I think this is a good time as any to wrap things up. Um, Where can people find you on the social meds? Uh, It's just at Gray Henson. I'm on Instagram and, uh, you know, Twitter, Mm. but I never really tweet. I just sort of scroll. I get that. Oh, actually, wait, before we finish up, if I can be selfish for a quick second. I don't know when I'll have the next opportunity to do this. Uh, we always ask for people to send us reviews on iTunes or wherever. And we usually ask for like the gayest reviews they can come up with. So a lot of reviews about booty holes, but uh, we always read it and we play in post. We put in the Lightning the Piazza overture, but someone actually sent me this via Instagram yesterday and I asked him if I could read it today. And he said, yes. So if I may have your attention for two minutes, I'll continue. Okay. Uh, so this was sent to me through Instagram DM and it's not really a review. It's more of a message, but I'm going to read it like it's a review. Uh, I suppose I could have done this as a review for the podcast, but it seemed more personal. So logically I made an Instagram just to write you this which is the most famous that I'll ever be. (laughs) Uh, You can still play the Light in the Piazza Overture if you like. I used to love your Baking It on Broadway series and was particularly partial to the ABC episodes. When you started the podcast, I was on for the ride from the beginning and it seems like the Obsession episodes, like this one today, have been going through some of my favorite things like a checklist. However, the reason I wanted to personally thank you was for Disneyland, the song, not the place. Uh, yes, you have converted another to the ways of Smile the Musical. I listened to it and instantly fell in love. In fact, it was one of the songs I sang at my senior recital this past fall. It was not only extremely important to me, it is the one song I get the most compliments about. It has now entered my permanent shower and car rotation. Thank you for bringing all these things into my life. I hope you are doing well and cannot wait to hear more from you. Sincerely, Adam. Uh, so thank you, so Adam. so sweet. Isn't it? Are you Thanks, familiar Adam. with Smile? I just know that song. I don't know Smile the Show. Um, I've heard it a few, like someone sang it in college and then Josh coaches uh, kids that are auditioning for colleges and um, one of them sang Smile. Yeah, yeah it, I, mean, I mean, that Disneyland. song That song is is the tits, but that whole uh, score uh, is worthwhile. And I, 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 tell all the gays, I tell all the gays to try to get into it. I mean, there's no official cast recording. There's, they made... I don't want to say a, yeah, a demo of, of sorts for Samuel French who licensed the script to be like, this is what the score is supposed to sound like. So it's like five girls, including Jodie Benson and like two synthesizers. And it's done at like warp speed so they could get it all on one record. Uh, but still it, it fucking slaps. So I always talk about like the three things on this podcast I probably bring up the most are Little Mermaid, Smile, and uh, Sally Murphy in the 1994 production of Carousel, which is very niche, but that's just- Oh my gosh, so niche. Also sidebar, one of my favorite videos of all time is Jodie Benson recording Part of Your World. Mm. Oh oh Mm. my gosh. And it's like, they turned down the lights and Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's so good. Everyone go watch that on YouTube. It's so good. Um, 
Grant, this has been delightful. <laughs> Sorry, this is all Thank to you. say. This has been delightful. Thank you for coming <laughs> on today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I had so much fun. I did too. We close out every episode with an uh, audio of a nice diva, usually a Broadway diva, but uh, can be any musical diva of your choice. So if there's anybody you would like to pick for us, I will make sure that it, there's no overlap. I mean, I feel like we we should do Judy. Um, you know what's really upsetting? We haven't done. we haven't done Judy yet. Okay. Well, this is the perfect one to do it. Fantastic. Well, guys, you can find Gray on Insta and Twitter, as he said. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplik. Uh, rate and subscribe and review the pod, as always. It helps with the algorithm. I hate that we rely on it, but that is technology. And uh, keep quarantining, you guys. Stay safe out there. And in the meantime, here's Miss Judy Garland. Take us away, Judes. Get ready for your judgment day. Come on, get happy. Chase your cares away. Shout hallelujah. Come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Sun is shining. Come on, get happy. Lord is waiting to take your hand. Hallelujah. Come on, get happy. We're going to the promised land. Heading across the river. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.